ago, when my wife and I, um, well, she knew before I did, obviously, when I learned that we were going to become parents, uh, we were gripped by the same kind of fears that most young parents are. Some of you in this congregation know exactly what that's going on right now. Uh, didn't know what to do, how to be a parent, what did that entail, what are the thousands of lessons I need to teach my children. And, and, and so I did what a lot of good Christians do. I opened the Bible and I, I went to the concordance and I looked under P for parenting and, and I found about five verses and one said about children obeying your parents. I thought that was good, but I don't know how to make that happen. Another one said parents can take their children to the city gates in the Old Testament and have them stoned if they're rebellious. I thought, okay, that's a good one. I'll remember that one. And, but that was about it. There wasn't much actual instruction on how do I do this. Until Lori and I came across a really good insight that, that many of you know, and that was the realization that parenting is basically discipleship. That, that's what parenting is. Parenting is discipleship. It's just that these disciples never leave the house. They're just going to be with you all the time, but it's the same kind of thing. Now, with discipleship, we also thought with that one key idea, there was one thought that was kind of our north star in how we wanted to raise our kids. That, that no matter what else happened, dirty rooms, messy clothes, dirty diapers, whatever it would be, we would continue to focus on this issue because if our kids didn't learn this, life was just going to be hard. And that was the issue of authority. We decided that by the time our kids are five years old, if they don't learn anything else, bedtime routines, brushing their teeth, whatever, and if they don't learn anything else, they will learn that they are under authority. Now, we didn't decide on that because we simply wanted well-behaved kids and make our parenting job easier. No, we realize that if our children don't realize that they are under authority, life is just going to be hard. Not only is it going to be hard in our family if they don't realize they're under our authority, when they get older, it's going to be hard when they have to work for someone else. And if they don't realize they're under the authority of another, that's going to be hard. When they go out into the world, if they don't realize they're under authority of our, our, our government, it's just going to be tough. And so that became our North Star to teach our children above all else that they were men and women under authority. As a matter of fact, that, that insight served us so well, that has really become the opening question that Lori and I ask whenever we do premarital counseling with a couple. The opening question, especially if we don't know them, is have you seen this man, have you seen this woman submit to authorities? Because if you haven't, you need to see that before you decide to get married to them. Be for the same reason, because if they don't know how to submit to authority, your life's going to be really hard. Now, this isn't just a... Um, I guess, parental insight or a life hack, this principle applies to nations, right? I don't know if any of you are news junkies, but if you've been watching the news, at the very highest level, we're wrestling as a nation with the question, did our president exceed his authority in the conversation he had with the president of the Ukraine? And if it's not our issue, look across the pond, that's what England's been wrestling with. They want to get their authority back from the European Union. That's what Brexit's all about. They want their authority to delegate how they live. Did our president exceed his authority? Everything comes back down to authority and how we manage it or steward it. Because whether it's a family, a, a, a government, or a nation, people will either flounder or flourish, and it depends on how we use and steward authority. What about you? 
Have you ever thought about how important authority is in your life? Have you ever thought about how you use whatever authority God's given to you? Maybe more importantly, have you ever thought about how you submit to authorities over you? Did you notice that was the driving question of our passage this morning? Look right there, verse 28 uh, 28 of chapter 11. By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? This was modern times. They'd say, who made you the boss over us? It's not surprising that this is the leading question of our passage. In one sense, this is the question of humanity, isn't it? Who ultimately is the authority? Who calls the shots? Who tells us no when we want to hear yes? If you've been paying attention as we've studied the Gospel of Mark, you may have realized that this issue, that that authority is the thing that offended Jesus's opponents more than anything else he did. The authority that Jesus claimed for himself and, and the actions by which he carried himself was the thing that offended them most. In the same way that last week when we looked at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, established Jesus's kingly authority to denounce the temple, in the same way Mark 11, 27 to 33, establishes authority to denounce the religious political leadership of the people of Israel known as the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin, as I alluded to, was the religious political leadership of the people, and we see uh, basically chapter 12, all that chapter is an interaction between Jesus and the Sanhedrin. Jesus' arrival and his ministry not only proclaimed the end of the temple, but it also proclaimed the end of the, 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 the infrastructure, the institutionalized understandings of Judaism as embodied by the Sanhedrin. And like much of what we've been looking at uh, since we started the second half of Mark's gospel, um, much of it has been kind of calling back to chapter 8. This morning is no different. You remember with me in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says this, and he began, Jesus, to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. Isn't that exactly how our section opens this morning? Look at chapter 11, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And so basically, Mark is actually teasing out in this section we're looking at exactly what Jesus said would be happening. So this morning, we're going to start by asking the very same question that the Sanhedrin asked, by what authority? We'll look at that first. And then we'll look at Jesus's ultimate authority, and then we'll conclude by our response to authority. Very important. There's a lot to cover, so let's jump right into it. By what authority? The question that the Sanhedrin led by by talking to Jesus, and needless to say, that Jesus, the things that he has done and said, has caused some concern for these people. These things that they're referring to in verse 28 surely refer to what just took place in the chapter prior, what we looked at last week, but it's also safe to assume that these things that they're referring to is all the things Jesus had said and done in his three years of ministry. Jesus' response, however, seems unusual, doesn't it? 
They say, what authority? Uh, who, who gave you the right to do these things? He says, let me ask you. This is typical of rabbinic tradition. Let me answer your question with a question that will answer, give you the answer you want. And the question was, you want to know about my authority? It all hinges on this. Was John's ministry, John the Baptist, was his ministry from heaven or from earth? And when he says by heaven, Jews commonly didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain, so they wouldn't say God. They would say heaven as a, as a replacement. But it would say, hey, John the Baptist's ministry, was it from God or was it from man? Now, we didn't t- spend a lot of time talking about John the Baptist, although John is a central figure in God's progressive revelation of salvation. Um, he appears in all four Gospels. So, we want to get a little insight into the role that John played. So, keep your finger in Mark 11, but let's jump back to Mark chapter 1, because Jesus says if we want to understand his authority, we kind of need to understand what John the Baptist was all about. John, or Mark chapter 1, we're looking at verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now notice a couple things right out of the gate. When Mark starts his gospel, He's talking about John the Baptist, but immediately quotes Isaiah the prophet. Now, here's a little Bible study tip. Whenever you're reading the New Testament and they're clearly quoting the Old Testament, it's always a good idea to go back and see what was the context. Why did they quote that particular passage? So, I'm going to go to Isaiah 40. You can go there if you want. Isaiah 40, and we're going to read verse 3, but I want to give you a little bit of context. So, I'm going to start at verse 1 of Isaiah 40. This is that portion of Isaiah's, I call it Isaiah's gospel because it's clearly a gospel message in Isaiah. Where, where that now the judgment of the people of God is giving way to God's redemption and he's reestablishing them in the land. And this is kind of the, the hit, uh, pivot point. Chapter 40, the Lord says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And here's the quotation that, that Mark quotes. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And and in keeping with what we talked about last week, the the passage about mountains being thrown into the sea as as a sign of God's judgment and his new redemptive work, it wasn't about this is how you can pray. That's not how it is. You see right here in Isaiah 40, more discussion about the valleys being turned up and the mountains being parted because God's doing a new work. So this is what Mark is quoting. But what's interesting is Malachi also quotes the same text. Let's turn over to the book of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. If you were here several weeks ago, Chris Lim did a great job unpacking this book, and he alluded to this particular verse, but had to just touch on it and go. 
Let me just read it to you briefly. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. This is how, what the Lord says. Malachi 3, 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, this is a verse, so Mark quotes the Isaiah version of that, but what do you notice about what the Lord's saying in Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3? Especially Malachi 3, it comes out really clear. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Who is speaking in Malachi 3? Yahweh, the Lord himself. You go to Mark's gospel, who is Mark referring to? Who's John referring to when he's quoting this? Who comes right after him? Jesus Christ. John the prophet was regarded by the people as the prophet, as the one who came before the Lord to make his way straight. John 1.22 says this. So John the Baptist is the fulfillment. He's the messenger that Isaiah is speaking about. He's the messenger that Malachi is speaking about. And Isaiah, but particularly Malachi, the Lord says, the messenger is going to go before me. And John the Baptist appears right before Jesus shows up on the scene. That's a pretty amazing allusion to the deity of Jesus himself. And many of the people were, this is what caused a lot of great hubbub or concern or wonder about Jesus. They knew he was a prophet, but there was talk, could he be more? There was, that's what added to the, the mystique of who this man is. You imagine the religious leaders being concerned that if he's the one that the prophet spoke about and we're reading Malachi right, and in Malachi, Yahweh says, the messenger comes before me, and here's John, who's the messenger, and following John is Jesus, then you can connect the dots. Listen to what John, gospel, John's Gospel 133 says. This is John the Baptist speaking. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In Matthew and Mark's gospel, add with fire, which is a cleansing, refining kind of element. So let's get back to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 11. You can see the leaders are reasoning through this in their mind. Look at verse 31 and 33. And they discuss it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But, we, but shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered him, we don't know. Uh, now, now, we'll get to that, but what I want you to see first and foremost is this classic human response when we're confronted with the authority of Jesus Christ. Two things happen here that, that, that the Pharisees enact for us, and, and they happen in all of our hearts. They responded with pride and fear. Now, we don't always respond with both of those, but we certainly respond with at least one of those. You notice that here, number one, they responded with pride because they don't want to admit that John's ministry was from heaven because if that's the case, then therefore that means that this Jesus that they're coming against has the authority over them. And they don't want that. And so they double down in their self-imposed foolishness. Secondly, you see that right there as well, fear gripped them because they didn't want to say that John's ministry was from man because everyone believed that John was a prophet. And if, and if they said he was from, his ministry was just from man, then they would be out of favor with the populace, and that's what they wanted. They wanted people's approval. 
Friends, Jesus and his authority elicits the same response from people today, doesn't he? How often when we're confronted with the authoritative teaching of God's word, we double down because we don't want to bend the knee, so we just harden the heart. I'm not going to believe that. that. That's not a portion I'm going to accept. Or I don't like that version or that translation. We come up with all kinds of crazy things to deny what the Bible says to us because we don't want to be confronted and realize there's an authority that supersedes us. Or we respond with fear. What are people going to think if I'm faithful to Scripture and do what Jesus asked me? What are the people going to think about me? What are they going to do? I mean, I don't know if I want that. I want to remain on the ends with people, either pride or fear. And neither one of these is a smart way to go through life. And that's the case here with these religious leaders. So they decide to play ignorant. Let me read you the entirety of verse 33. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Friends, you need to see the genius of Jesus here. Here are the religious leaders of the day. I mean, this is the whole crowd of them. I mean, you got the Pharisees, the chief priests, the Sadducees, the elders. And Jesus is asking a simple question. Was John a prophet of God or not? And the religious establishment can't even figure out if John was a prophet from God or not. So if they can't even figure out something as simple and crucial as that, how are they fit to lead the nation of Israel? By their own admission, they're not qualified because they cannot discern or recognize God working amongst them. And they know exactly, and Jesus, so they they, they, they set themselves up. And Jesus just teed it up and there it was. And then he rolls into a parable about these tenants who are not fit and the vineyard will be taken from them and given to someone else. Now, they know what's going on here. They are the wicked tenants, and the vineyard owner is going to take it from them and give it to someone else. Verse 12 tells us that. Look at verse 12 of chapter 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. No wonder the temple is a sham. The people who are leading it are as as well. They couldn't recognize the authority of God when he was literally standing right in front of them. Friends, if you've been in our study of Mark, what's been the reoccurring kind of question that people would have when they would see Jesus do miracles or hear him teach? They would say, where does this guy get his authority? We've never heard anything like this. This one teaches as one with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. How in the world does he do this stuff? He speaks and unclean spirits cower in fear and leave. He says a word and deformity strengthens out. He just says a word and blindness gives way to sight. Deafness gives way to hearing. He just talks and the ocean, the winds and the waves, they listen to him. He just says, calm down and They are amazed. They have seen the authority. Everyone knows where this is coming from. And as I said back in February, if you read Mark's gospel, nature, disease, demons easily submit to the the lordship of Christ. The only beings that fight his authority, it's us. It's a pretty sad commentary when demons will recognize something and we don't, isn't it? That puts them a little higher in terms of, I guess, wisdom there. 
So they knew what authority they were dealing with, but they just doubled down and decided to reject it. So what we see next in the remaining 21 verses, now that Jesus has basically clearly made it clear that this leadership is being removed, God is doing something new, he's going to give the vineyard to others. By the way, those others are going to be the church, the Gentiles, us. This is basically counterattack after counterattack after counterattack. Since they were too prideful to admit the truth and too fearful to let on what they truly believed about Jesus, they're going to ask two questions. One, they're going to try and destroy him. The second question, they're going to try and discredit him, right? Now, we won't um, be able to unpack all of these interactions. They're pretty straightforward if you want to read them. What I want to do is show the connective tissue into what Mark is trying to do in linking all these together. By the way, the third set of questions we look at, basically, we'll see this compared to Matthew's gospel. When they realize their own scribes are starting to believe what Jesus has to say, they give up. They realize they've been bested, and so verse 34 says they dared not speak to him about this again. They dare not question him. The first question that they posed to him was a political question, and they wanted to destroy him with this question. You can look at it there. It starts at verse 13. It's basically a question about taxes. And the question went something like this. Jesus, and you can see they're buttering him up. They're saying, we know you don't listen to people. You speak what is true, and you don't, you don't, you don't give in to people just because of their position. So you're going to give us the right answer on this. So they're setting this up. Here's the question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And you can almost feel them just like lathering their lips. They think they got him. Because if Jesus says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, what kind of Messiah is this? Like, you're supposed to be delivering us from the yoke of Caesar, but you're telling us we need to throw money into his coffers to finance his oppression of us? Right? On the other hand, if Jesus says no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then Rome's going to arrest him and execute him as an insurrectionist. Oh, we are genius. We have got him. Either now no one's going to believe him or Rome is going to execute him. Either way, we win. What does Jesus do? I mean, he's a genius, right? He says, hey, give me a coin. So somebody gives him a coin, which, by the way, is ironic because who gives him the coin? The Pharisees, the, these, the religious leaders in the temple grounds. They're walking around with images of uh, graven images, which they shouldn't be doing, but we're, we're going to leave that alone. So he has a coin. He says, hey, Whose image is on the coin? They say, it's Caesar's. And Jesus says, okay. So the things that have Caesar's image, you just give it back to him. But the things that have God's image, you give that back to God. Here's your coin back, right? And how genius this is, because on the one hand, Jesus completely legitimizes government without compromising allegiance to God. And he reduces, the, he says basically, don't make too much or too little of your governing authorities. Caesar may have his image on all these kinds of things, and that's fine. Give back to him what is his image. But the impression, what everyone would have known is, who has God's image? If you're a note taker, write down Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. Yeah, whatever got Caesar's image, you give it back to Caesar. Let him have his stuff. But whatever's got God's image, then you owe that back to God. And friends, that's every one of us, whether you are a Christian or not, the Bible says we are all made in the image of God. Every one of us has a purpose. Every one of us was designed for something. We're not just a random collection of molecules and, 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 and we're not just animated, more elevated monkeys. We were made for a purpose and we have an image and it's impressed upon us. And because we are in his image, we are owed to him. 
our allegiance, our devotion, our, our hearts, mind, soul, our strength. And Jesus said it very clear. They couldn't get him politically. They couldn't destroy him. So they come back with the second question. Now, if we can't destroy him, maybe we can discredit him. And so we see in verses 18 to 27. And like the first question, they feel they have Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. They are wringing their hands. Okay, he was smart. He got out of that first one. We're going to nail him now. I'm gonna, we're going to ask him a question about the resurrection. Now, first of all, you remember three weeks ago I taught you, look at the passage here in verse 18. Who's coming to Jesus to ask the question? The Sadducees. Remember I taught you three weeks ago? The Sadducees don't even believe in a resurrection, right? So this, this is so insincere right out of the gate, but they figure let's challenge Jesus and let's talk about the resurrection. Now, the thing that they're doing is they're talking about the resurrection and this unusual custom based on Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, known as the Leverite Law. Now, Leverite, from Latin, levar, brother, not to be confused with Levite, Levi priest. Okay, I don't know why we chose to use, call this a, a Latin phrase to confuse things. I just wanted this to be clear. We're not talking about the Levites. We're talking about the Leverite Law. And what that law basically says, based in Deuteronomy 25, 5, was that if a man was married to a woman and he died before having an heir, a son, then uh, that man's brothers had the obligation responsibility to marry that woman and have a son on the dead man's behalf, and that would be the dead man's son. Now, obviously, as you can tell, marriage in those days was not about romance and love and the kind of things we associate it with. It was mostly about property rights and inheritance, and the name would not disappear from the land of Israel. And so this son would kind of be, uh, this man would be a proxy, and this son would then go on in his dead father's name and inherit the inheritance and carry it on so that there, no tribe of Israel would disappear. That, that's just the kind of context behind that. And so the, the, the Sadducees come up with this story that there was a woman, and she married a man, and he died before having a son. So, so then she married his brother, and then he died before having a son. Then she married the other brother, and she did this with all seven brothers, Right? In first hour, we're talking about her cooking. We're not going to get into those kinds of jokes about the way she cooks. The point is, seven brothers married this woman, and they all died, and none of them had a son. So the question is this, Jesus, in the afterlife, whose wife is she going to be? Gotcha! Answer that one. Because if he denies the resurrection, then he, which most Jews believe, they, he loses credibility amongst the Jews. However, if he upholds this resurrection doctrine, how are you going to deal with Deuteronomy 25? So if he denies Deuteronomy 25 that everyone holds to, no one's going to believe him. So he's discredited no matter what he does. And they feel like they have got him now. But what does Jesus do? Notice how he answers them in verse 24 of chapter 12. And this is a a frightening thing for any, if you're a believer and you love the Lord, this is not something you would ever want to hear. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Ouch. Friends, you have to realize this. The Sadducees were all about the scriptures and power. They were all about Torah, the scriptures, and all about political power, power. So Jesus is hitting them right where it hurts. And he says, you, neither, you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. For one thing, they mistakenly assume that eternal life, the life after, is just a longer version of how things are here. 
The reality is that the conventions and structures of this world are going to give way to the next. So if you're a note taker, write down 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 40 to 44. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 40 to 44. Because in that passage, Paul talks about this wonderful continuity between this life and the next, but at the same time, an amazing discontinuity between this life and the next. So, so unusual the discontinuity that as Jesus says here in Mark 12, but you'll be like the angels in heaven. He's not saying when you die, you become an angel. He's recognizing realities we understand now are completely different than the realities that there are there, right? Someone once said, we can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in utero can imagine a Beethoven piano concerto or the Grand Canyon at sunset. Jesus was saying, look, this is a, Jesus is making the same point that he's been making to his disciples all along from Math, uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 33. The reason you don't understand this is that you are always thinking about the things of man and not the things of God. That life is nothing like this life. And if you're taking the conventions of this life to make sense of that life, you're going to hit a dead end. Secondly, you also don't know the scriptures. Notice what Jesus says to them in verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? And I love the fact that Jesus knows who his audience is. The Sadducees didn't uh, respect anything beyond Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. So, which is why since the resurrection is not explicitly taught there, they, they didn't believe in the resurrection. So the Sadducees were what you would call the theological conservatives. They, they just want to protect the first five books of Moses, whereas the Pharisees were you would call the theological liberals. They accepted the prophets and the wisdom writings and all that. And the Sadducees said, no, we're just going to guard the Torah. And so Jesus doesn't quote from Isaiah or Daniel or Job, which talk about the resurrection. He knows who his audience is. So he goes right to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, and he says here in Mark 12, 26, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. What's amazing about this, friends, is that... God's word is so worthy to be studied. Jesus makes a case based on the verbal tense here. Did you notice that? Jesus makes the case. He's saying the, 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 the Torah teaches the resurrection. God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hello, they're not dead. If they were dead and there were no resurrection, God would have to say, I was their God. But now they're dead, and so you know how that goes. He says, I am their God. I'm not a God of the dead. I'm a God of the living. You guys are quite wrong. Strike two. The final question, the last interaction. And for our purposes, this is a very common, well-known passage where a young scribe of the law says, teacher, of all the laws out there, and we created 613 based on the Ten Commandments, so of the 613 and other laws we've created, which is the most important? Let's see how much you know. Now, it's interesting, if you read the parallel account, Matthew shows that the scribe was more aggressive, and so Matthew says this man came to test Jesus. 
Mark is softened to this man because you actually see a friendly exchange between the scribe and Jesus because of what's going on here. For our purposes, I'm going to focus on verse 32. Verse 32 and following. And the scribe said to him, to Jesus, you're right, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that, it, that God is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Notice this, this scribe is coming to the conclusion, says, you're right. This whole temple system, this, this whole infrastructure we have built about here, it's, it's not necessarily about the system and sacrifices. That's not what it's about. But a heart allegiance, a heart devotion that shows itself in a transformed lifestyle that is both vertical and horizontal. I get it. And which is why Jesus follows up with him in verse 34. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said, you are not far from the kingdom and from that point on, no one dared ask him any more questions. All the religious leaders of the people tested him on civil matters, political issues, spiritual, social, and they could not trump his authority. And then when they recognized one of their own is now starting to counter-convert, they said, we're done. This is not working. Jesus had demonstrated his authority finally over all these people. In fact, the stone that they had rejected back in verse 12 has truly become the cornerstone. The stone by which all lines and measurements and structural realities must conform or that other stone gets cast aside. Now, that's one way to interpret that. Some people believe that cornerstone is referring to the very top of a, of a lintel of an arcway that holds the most pressure and carries the most load. Doesn't matter. The point being, the cornerstone is the stone that every other stone has to work with and conform to or is going to be cast out. And they had rejected Jesus as that one. But in fact, he is this cornerstone of a new temple, of a new movement that God is building. And if you are a Christian and you've committed your life to him, you are part of that work. You're part of that work that he's doing. But for some of us, we may need to reevaluate Jesus in our own lives. Maybe we don't understand who exactly he is. Others of us... That might take a recommitment to align ourselves to what he commands. You, you, your trouble is not knowing who he is. Your struggle is, I don't want to do what he says. For all of us, it requires giving everything we have to him because we are in his image. In essence, that's what the remaining 10 verses of Mark 12 is about. Reevaluating who Jesus is and how we give our lives to him. In essence, for the sake of time, I can't get into it all of it, verses 35 to 37, that's what Jesus is saying. Look, if you want to get in on this new work of what God is doing, you need to reevaluate who you think the son of David is. Because who you think the son of David is, is not correct. And if you want to be a part of this, you need to give some of that some thought. But more to the point, we need to give careful thought about how we're going to live our lives in light of who Jesus is. Thankfully, with, with the light of 2,000 years of church history and, and you all have Bibles and many of you have been well taught, you know who Jesus is. It's not a matter of not understanding him. It's a matter of am I going to align my life to be what he asks of me? And that is what Mark does in presenting us this model of the widow. 
See, among amazing lessons we can learn from this widow, she in Mark's idea is a model of discipleship. Now, if you've been with our study of Mark, you know, you already know Mark's style. This is the way Mark writes, doesn't he? He uses, he closes these major sections with contrasting pictures to highlight what he's talking about. We saw this, I think it was last week or the week before that, contrasting the disciples and their desire for glory with blind Bartimaeus, with his just desire for mercy. And Mark's saying, that's what discipleship is. He's doing the same thing here. He's contrasting these scribes and these religious leaders with this poor widow. Unlike the scribes who trust in their reputations, and he talks about in verse 38, and their comforts and their station in life, this widow trusts in God. Even though these leaders are corrupting the very, abusing their authority and corrupting the very institutes that were meant to help and bless this woman, like these widows, they're just using it to devour them. Yet she still continues to show up and make contributions. This widow does what the rich young ruler we met in chapter 10 wouldn't. Gives away all that she has. It's interesting, verse 44, in the original Greek, it says it this way. You can translate it that this widow, she threw down all her life. But for context and translations to smooth it out, they've translated it the way they have here in verse 44, has put in everything she had. But another way to say it is she threw down her whole life. No matter how little it was, it was huge in God's eyes. There's always more to be said about this passage, but I want to just focus on what, what, what we can't say less about it, and that is this. How will we respond to this authoritative one that Mark has presented in all of Mark chapter 11 and 12? How do you respond to this authoritative one named Jesus? The widow reminds us that a respond, the, our response is not a matter of amount, size, or significance, but a matter of sacrifice. A matter of trust. Friends, submitting to the authority of Christ in our lives is very similar. It's not so much the things that can be quantified, like maybe a giving statement uh, at the end of the year or a church attendance or other tangible metrics like that. It's not something that can be quantified that way, but in an allegiance of the heart, a devotion that shows in the way it costs to follow after Christ. That's the point of comparison here. Submitting to the authority of Christ is going to cost us. It's just, frankly, it's going to cost us. Number one, it's going to cost you your ego at the very least. It's going to cost you your agenda for another, your own wants, desires. I, I jokingly said in first hour, you know, it's earlier, I said, for example, who wants to get up early on a Sunday morning, right? couple of people raised their hands, you know, but the point is, even in small matters, to the greatest of matters, following Jesus is going to cost in 10,000 different ways. But Jesus already addressed this, didn't he, in Mark 8? What did he say? Mark 8, 35. If you want to find life, what do you have to do? Then you lose it. So again, we, we have to wrestle with that. Do we believe what Jesus said, or are we going to believe the way we want to th understand things to be? And that's exactly what we see this widow doing here this morning, which is exactly, by the way, what Christ is going to be doing in a couple chapters. He's going to throw down his life. I think Mark's writing was intentional. We don't give back to the Lord what he hasn't already given to us, do we? I know that's not the way the world thinks about authority, but that's the way the Lord thinks about authority. Think about John, um, John 13, 3. John 13, 1 to 3. 
When John says, when Jesus knew that all authority had been given to him and his hour had come, what did he do? He got up, picked up a towel, and washed everyone's feet. I don't think that's coincidental that they would frame it that way. When Jesus knew that his hour had come and all authority was his, he served others. He made himself low so you could be raised high. Friends, isn't that an authority? Isn't that the kind of authority that you could follow? Isn't that the kind of authority that you could submit yourselves to? Friends, we will always be challenged. That is the question of the hour. That was the question in Genesis 3. Who will you obey? Who is your authority? This is the authority that God has, and this is the authority how God uses it. If you want to be his disciple, we need to submit to his authority. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as a song we sing to conclude our services, Lord, we pray that you would conquer our rebel hearts. There isn't a man or woman in this room that does not fight authority. I fight authority. We all fight authority. That's what it is to be fallen in our sinful natures. We don't want anyone to be the boss of us. But we are being confronted with the ultimate authority in your son. Father, I pray that there wouldn't be a man or woman that fights the authority of Christ in their life that they would see that this authority is good and beautiful for us. Even though we live in a world where authority is abused every day, mismanaged, and people use it to oppress and for their own gain, you use your authority to bless and for your own loss. Lord, help us to submit our lives to that kind of loving, judicious, godly authority. Help us submit our lives to Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.